This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. to be here and to be the voice of uh, Polish uh, women, it's an honor for me. Um, and yeah, I, I, uh, my name is Martina and I am Polish feminist activist and uh, I'd like to talk to, about, to you about the situation in uh, Poland. <clears throat> so Poland, there are around 38 million of people in Poland and of course half of them are women. And in 2021, according to the official data provided by the government, there were around um, 100 legal abortions in Poland. According to the data provided by uh, feminist organizations, there were around 100,000 illegal abortions in Poland at the same time. Um, abortion was legal in Poland between 1956 and 1993. Uh, Back then, each woman would say that their uh, her situation is difficult and then she would get an abortion and no one would ask any questions. But after 1989, when we had our first uh, first free elections, the situation changed. Um, back then, church was very strong because it helped to overturn communists. And uh, church, of course, didn't want to allow abortions. So um, basically, they sold our rights uh, in return for support from the church. And abortion became uh, legal in just few cases when the pregnancy was a result of rape, when the pregnancy was um, was a danger to women's life, and when the fetus showed risk of severe damage or illness. And for the next almost 30 years, we were uh, listening that abortion is a sin and a murder. And we got used to that. Uh, even though many of us had abortions, we were just traveling to Czech Republic, to Slovakia, to Germany, but we weren't talking about it. Even though in 1993, uh, there were many protests. There were um, women gathered over one million signatures um, to, um, under the proposal of having a referendum. Um, and uh, even though like, there were many uh, many marches, many protests in the streets, and the bill was still was still uh, voted. And uh, after after 30 years, many women got convinced uh, that abortion is something really bad, and that the compromise that we got in 1993 uh, was the best situation. Even that, uh, you know, after the compromise, we had around 1,000 legal abortions. So it was really like. A, less than 1% of what was really happening. 
Um, and this lasted for almost 30 years, and but everything changed in, in uh, 2020. Because back then, some politicians uh, were convinced by the organizations supported by Russia that they should do even more. And uh, they sent the bill, um, the bill from 1993, to the Constitutional Tribunal, and they asked uh, the judges to decide whether this uh, bill is constitutional. And the judges who were are highly politicized and they basically right now are servants to, to the government. They decided that abortion in case of uh, fetal anomalies isn't supposed to be legal. Uh, at this point, we've had, like I said, around 1,000 legal abortions per year, but more, uh, like 90% of them uh, was were because of this this case, because of the fetus anomalies or illnesses. So those were the, tra the most tragic ones. So naturally, we uh, went to the streets and we were protesting for many weeks. Uh, but the decision was made uh, is, uh, uh, even uh, even even <laughs> um, though there, there were protests. Um, they published it like three months later, and uh, from this moment, from January 2021, the abortion was basically illegal in Poland. Um, next year, we had, like I said, only around 100 legal abortions, and someone, some women died because of this law. Uh, there was this case of uh, Isabella from a small city that, that she died because. Um, her, uh, her child died, and uh, the doctors were waiting for. They were too afraid to to make an abortion because they were afraid they would go to jail. And um, yeah, like like I said, we had around 100 uh, legal abortions. Some of them were because the woman's life was uh, was in danger. Some of them were done because our activists found a loophole, and um, and uh, they were able to fight for abortions um, because of um, women's mental health. When, for example, women had suicidal thoughts, uh, she would have an abortion in some cases because, of course, not every doctor would allow it. But 2020 changed something else also because it changed people's perspective. Uh, because you see, until, until now, everybody, uh, except for the left, didn't want to, um, didn't want to touch the so-called compromise. They were thinking that this is the best choice. The, the compromise of just you know, these three cases uh, for abortion. But when they changed the law, the compromise was gone, and we used that we used that moment to uh, to talk about abortion. Why is it necessary? Why is it important? And we were able to change people's perspective. And now. Uh, now almost everybody wants uh, to have legal abortion up until 12 weeks, even the largest parties from the opposition that were uh, were protecting the compromise for many years. They were against legal abortion. They were saying that you know every abortion is a tragic situation and we should have uh, less and less of them. And they were protecting the compromise. But now, in last year, they decided that they're in the future, when they win elections, they're going to make abortion legal. So, ironically, uh, by going too far, they actually have done us a favor. Of course, it's a, it's a tragic situation because, like I said, women die because of it. 
but without that, without uh, without this uh, ruling, I suppose we wouldn't have uh, any chance for legal abortion for many many years because everybody would be too afraid to to touch the so-called compromise. But I think it's also important to add one one more thing to this. Like personally, I think it may sound it may sound uh, worse, but I think our situation is actually a bit easier than what's going right now in the US because women in Poland uh, are not being punished for having an abortion. Um, this is important because um, people who help women, people who like the doctors or the families, they can be prosecuted, but women can't. So you can have your own abortion and not being afraid to go to jail. Uh, and also, um, since abortion pills have become popular, uh, we switched mostly to them. We never had uh, we never had clinics in, uh, uh, in Poland. We always had abortions in hospitals. But uh, since the abortion pills became popular, we basically have this phone line where we can call where we can call to the uh, activists, and they will order us uh, a pill uh, pills. And they will, they will send the pills to us, and we just take them at home. We are we are on the phone with the activist. She goes through everything, and then the next day, women just go to work like like nothing happened. So this is you know for for women in Poland, this is much more um, accessible. This is also safer than going abroad to you know this is uh, it's also cheaper, so it's easier to get done. So this is also the, the main difference, the situation in Poland. Uh, like I said, uh, we have around 100,000 illegal abortions every year, and we do them, we just do them without the support from the country. Uh, we created our own support system, and uh, it's working. It's not perfect, and it's not what we wish to be, but it's working because we have some amazing activists uh, in, uh, around us. And uh, we're going to use it till we change the law, and hopefully, like I said, because they, they went too far, so hopefully we're going to change the law once we win uh, the elections, and it's going to happen to the, uh, in the next few years. So, um, yeah, so fingers crossed that we're going to have legal abortion in the next few years. Thank you so much, Martina. Um, next, we're going to hear from uh, Raito, our comrade in Mexico. Thank you. <clears throat> well, as we know, last year uh, we had uh, here in Mexico four states where abortion was decriminalized, uh, that were Veracruz, Mexico City, Oaxaca, and Hidalgo. Now we have 10 states where abortion is totally decriminalized. It is not regulated, but uh, you cannot, uh, they cannot put you in jail uh, to, to, by have, to have an abortion. In, to talk a little bit more about this, in 2019, Oaxaca was the second state to approve the decriminalization of abortion. The states, the ten, the ten states where it is not criminalized anymore are Coahuila, Sinaloa, Mexico, Mexico City, Baja California, Baja California Sur, 
Colima, Oaxaca, Guerrero, Veracruz, and Hidalgo. The first stage uh, where abortion was decriminalized, as we know, was Mexico City in April 2007. Then in October 2019 uh, was Oaxaca. In June 2021 was Hidalgo, was decriminalized in Hidalgo. In July 2022, uh, Veracruz was the fourth state that decriminalized abortion. After that, abortion was decriminalized in Baja California in October 2021. And to the end of the year, of the last year, abortion was decriminalized in Colima in December 2021. This year, abortion was decriminalized in the state of Sinaloa in March uh, 8, 2022, which is uh, the International Women's Day. In the state of Guerrero, abortion was decriminalized in May 17, 2022. And also this year, abortion was decriminalized in the state of Baja California Sur. So from the 32 states that we have here in Mexico, 10 of them, uh, abortion is totally decriminalized. And as we know, this movement came from Argentina in August 2018 when the Senate uh, reject an initiative to decriminalize abortion in that country. So to, in response to that, uh, a lot of uh, Latin American women in many countries uh, came out uh, to, the, to the streets and started marching. By that time, uh, we had our first march in Juarez in September 28. 2018, and on September 7, last year, the Supreme Court of the Nation declared the invalidation of the Articles 195 and 196 of the State of Coahuila. The discussion about the decriminalization of abortion in Mexico got again to the Supreme Court of the Nation, and the determination clears the way to check out other state penal codes that criminalize abortion. What saw the Supreme Court, these invalidated articles used to rule three years of prison penalty to anyone who has a voluntary abortion during the first uh, weeks of pregnancy. In that way, Coahuila was forced to reform its penal code so women must not be criminalized for that practice. The president of the court, Arturo Saldivar, described this as a historic decision. Women won't go to the jail anymore. In 2018, the Supreme Court, no, 2008, the Supreme Court of the Nation declared uh, constitutional the decriminalization of abortion in Mexico City. Um, as, you, as you know, in Mexico City, it's legal and they have clinics to do it. In the rest of the states, what we do is that we build uh, networks with activists, feminists, and women, and accompany abortion uh, with misoprostol. For example, uh, that is the way we do it here in Juarez. We make a safe abortion at home. And the collective or organization get the medicine, and in local drugstores, and we don't, know, we don't need a prescription, and donate to people uh, who may need it. There are also comrades uh, who do it uh, without being part of, the, of any organization. They do it by themselves. Um, I have accompanied uh, women since 2010 with this medicine, which is not expensive, 
about $27. And um, we share a lot of the information that are two types of abortion uh, recommended by the World Health Organization, and we share it uh, in our groups, in Facebook and WhatsApp, and all the social media, uh, which are uh, surgical abortion and abortion with medicine, which is uh, the most popular here in the states where it is not regulated. Um, unfortunately, here in the state of Chihuahua, is still uh, illegal. So you could be penalized uh, with prison penalty. They find, find out that you had an abortion. Countries where abortion is totally decriminalized uh, are Argentina, Uruguay, Cuba, and Mexico, a lot of states. And countries where abortion is still totally penalized are El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua. Some important concepts uh, that the ministers of the Supreme Court uh, talked about in this last um, determination that happened September last year are um, they talked about maternity and they recognized it, recognized it as a voluntary act of women. They talked about uh, how the state um, penal codes criminalize women's sexual behavior because in case of rape, the temporality to get an abortion is not limited. Uh, and they also exposed that comparing an embryo or an embryo to a person is based on uh, beliefs that cannot be used by the state to limit human rights. They considered that life starts, um, this concept of that life starts since the conception is not a legal term. They pointed out uh, the implications about giving citizen rights to, a, to an embryo and put them um, as the same level as women reproductive rights. And here in Mexico, there is a big problem of teenage pregnancy. We have the first place uh, in the world uh, in teenage pregnancies. There are 10,000 cases of 11-year-old girls or 10-year-old girls having babies each year. And the state of Chihuahua has the, state, the first place uh, in this problem in all the Mexican Republic. Of course, of all of these babies are products of a rape. Um, so authorities from a country where there are a lot of girls being raped uh, should not criminalize abortion and because a lot of times they don't have the possibility to, to denounce. And that is why uh, we make a lot of um, safe abortion at home. The main slogan of women abortion movement in Latin America is sex, sex education for deciding contraceptives for avoiding abortion, legal abortion for avoiding death. And as we as we know, as you know, uh, we often wear green scarves uh, in the marches, rallies, or symbolic actions that we organize. Uh, here was the first march, which was September 28, 2018. We were around 50 people, men and women. We had a particular experience uh, in that time because uh, the video invited to the march, even though 
there was not a lot of uh, they, they, there was not a lot of people there, but the video became viral, reaching almost three million views. So we received a lot of threats. Some pro-life groups um, organized an event in the same place at the same time that our group. So we decided to request the presence of the police and human rights, and they were good with us. In that uh, time, uh, there also were marches in Toluca, Morelos, Mexico City, Guadalajara, Tepic, Oaxaca, Veracruz, Nuevo León, Guanajuato, and Chihuahua. A lot of the states in the country. Um, also, uh, other determinations of the of the court uh, towards the penal code of the state of Coahuila. And some parts of the Article 199 uh, of the Penal Code of the State of Coahuila were removed because there were, there were these were used to criminalize abortion and the possibility to abort in case of rape uh, was limited to 12 weeks. And uh, last year, at the Supreme Court on September 20, the Supreme Court declared that doctors and other public health services employees must provide medical attention to any woman who has an emergency related to a voluntary abortion because uh, before that they, they couldn't do it. Uh, and also, Last year, Paula Avila Guillén said to NBC News that uh, Mexico's ruling in, is in stark contrast to the law enacted in Texas that forbids women to terminate their pregnancy after six weeks without exceptions, not even in cases of rape. I didn't know that. I was um, searching information about this uh, yesterday. And this is far removed from what is happening in Argentina, Mexico, and is closer to what is happening in El Salvador. Mm, and I think that's all. Uh, it is important to, I, I, I think that uh, it is a, uh, this, steps are a product of fighting in the streets, are a product of uh, the women movement for reproductive freedom in Latin America. And I think the only way that uh, American women can uh, go further is organizing themselves, organizing in the streets, and making um, uh, politics in the street being present, being public. Okay, thank you, Raito. Um, and next, we're going to hear from Natalia. I was so excited about this talk that I made a PowerPoint. <laughs> um, that's not the Sorry, guys. You get a sneak peek. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I know that um, 
Caito talked about Argentina, but I actually wanted Caito to go first because there's also roots of the feminist movement in, in Mexico that really fed in, I think, to the development of the movement in Argentina. Um, and I wanted to, and I just wanted to acknowledge that. And, and you know, I think Latin America in particular, there's been a wave of struggles that have fed into each other over the course of a couple of decades, and, and a lot of, a lot more discussion to be had about that. Can you move the mic closer? Oh yeah. Is that better? Yes. Okay, sorry. Um, the the campaign for the right to abortion in Argentina put forward legislation uh, for legal abortion eight times since 2005. Six of those times it failed. Um, it didn't come to a vote. But on the seventh try in 2018, it passed the lower house of Congress, and then it failed to be ratified by a small margin by the higher house of Congress. Um, early in December 2020, the lower house of Congress again passed the legislation. And for the whole month of December, in the lead up to the Senate vote, the streets of Argentina were green with mobilizations. The green is the signature color of the abortion movement in Argentina. Um, the, every campaign has a color. The, the forced birthers have light blue for their color in, in, in the streets. Um, and you know this wave of struggle was dubbed La Marea Verde, which is called the Green Tide. So on the eighth try, um, the Green Tide won this being passed into law. And you can see here some pictures of, of the moment in the streets when it was passed, when people learned that they had had a victory. Um, the the Marea Verde imposed abortion as a central political issue across all of society. The campaign was a true mass movement. It included sections of all of the political parties, which before 2018, none of them were in favor of abortion. It split them on the question of abortion. Um, and it was also, it, it included elements of all classes and all sectors. But it united around a central banner with three key planks. Sexual education to decide, contraceptives to not get pregnant, and abortion not to die. Argentina is a country with a very strong tradition of struggle and militants. Um, it's fairly unique in the world in that sense, um, though, though not the only place. And, and because of this, there are very deep-rooted institutions which allow mass demands to find organizational expression very quickly when they arise. The campaign for the right to abortion emerged as a campaign of the National Gathering of Women, which has been a hub of socialist organizing since 1986. They hold an annual gathering. Uh, in recent years, it's drawn 80,000, 90,000 people. Um, and in 2005, it was at this gathering that the campaign for the right to abortion was put forward. And by 2007, two years later, 300 organizations had already coalesced um, and around these demands and, and built um, the movement around it. Um, although the most recent campaign goes back to 2005, there have been protests demanding the legalization of abortion every single year since the democratization in Argentina. Here you can see some protests from the year that, um, of the democratization. Uh, what I want to convey in this talk is that it was not a few Senate members who changed their minds about abortion and ultimately decided to pass legislation. It was a country that experienced a seismic shift in mass consciousness about the way that people think about abortion. This is a Catholic country. The church is still institutionally connected to the state. Uh, they actually are involved in the funding and the laws and all of that, and they still passed abortion in Argentina, and that's such a significant thing. Um, and I want to try to use my time to explain a couple of the dynamics and the evolution of the movements that transformed the country on this issue. I don't have time for everything, but a couple of snippets. So um, I mentioned the democratization. Argentina had a dictatorship from 1976 until 1983. During that time, 30,000 people were disappeared by the state. One of the reasons why Argentina has such strong social movements and organizations is, is because of the way that dictatorship was brought, brought down. 
It was the only country in South America in this era that took down the dictatorship from below through struggle. The most central force at the forefront of that, that breaking the fear of repression um, and death was a movement of mothers demanding the safe return of their children. They're called the, the Madres of the Plaza de Mayo. And um, every Thursday, even under the dictatorship, they marched at the plaza, uh, which is the main city square in Buenos Aires, where the presidential building, city hall, and the central bank are. Here you can see some pictures. Um, during the dictatorship, even pregnant women were kidnapped and disappeared by the state. And many were raped in jails. They were forced to give birth in jail cells. They were tortured and they were killed. And their babies were taken from them. Their families never met these children. The mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, and now the grandmothers of the Plaza de Mayo as well, um, are, are a symbol of the hypocrisy of a state that insists that fetuses must be protected while thousands of babies remain unaccounted for. Babies and children, and, adult, and adults who are also children. Um, in the last several years, something really important shifted around the consciousness on, on this issue and those connections. It's, it's a similar, a little bit akin to the way that we talk about reproductive justice in the United States, where people began to talk about wanted motherhood, and that every mother who wants a child should have their child safe which also means that those who do not want children should not be forced to carry them to term. And all the ways that racism, state violence, and class oppression undermine people's ability to choose to be parents. Um, in Argentina, because of this history, people have very strong collective memories. The experience of the dictatorship, but also the, the experience of democratization itself, which was a process led by the mothers, um, but that also involved a mass movement of society, is, is indelible in people's memories on the left. The dictatorship was broken, but yet women still did not have their children safe, and they still needed to seek clandestine abortions for unwanted pregnancies, even though, uh, quote unquote, we have democracy now. The demands of the campaign for the right to abortion are a continuation of the demands that were championed by the mothers. It's seen explicitly as a continuation of that struggle in the way that it's talked about in the streets. The green pañuelo itself, which you can see a picture of here, um, has its logo uh, is, is reminiscent of the, um, the bandana that the mothers would wear in white that was the signature of their, their protests. And they, they did that deliberately in celebration of the people who came before and, and the lives that were lost in the struggles before. Feminists wove this collective memory into the arguments about abortion in important ways that helped conceptualize on a mass scale the importance of bodily autonomy. They linked the issue of access to abortion to the incomplete process of democratization and as a form of continued state violence. And this brings me to the second theme that I wanted to talk about. I'm only talking about two. I'm not going to go on forever, I promise. Um, but um, the, the, more, the more recent movement um, uh, against femicide was also fundamental in changing opinions on abortion. This movement um, developed into wide-scale mass mobilizations that foreshadowed and laid really important groundwork um, that refused to let the issue of femicide be ignored. A, a woman in Argentina is killed every 36 hours by her partner or her boyfriend. So that means that every three days there's a femicide in Argentina. And these individual cases began to get mass attention, sparking enormous protests in 2015 around the slogan and hashtag Ni Una Menos, which harkens back to the, um, the femicide movement in, in Juarez, where it started in Juarez with, with the slogan Ni Una Mas. Not, not, so Ni Una Menos, not one less. And in, in Mexico, the demand was Ni Una Mas, not one more death. In Poland also. In Poland also. also. Oh, that's, that's you can see how interconnected struggle is uh, internationally. 
Um, so, um, in October 2016, the Menos Collective, again, things find organizational expression very quickly in Argentina, organized the, the first ever mass women's strike in response to the murder and rape of 16-year-old Lucia Perez. There was a one-hour work and study stoppage, um, and protesters wore all black for the whole day and morning, like thousands of people. And these protests spread across Latin America as well as across Europe. So you can see how the issue of femicide was linked to the issue of the Ni Una Menos movement against femicide, and arguably could never have reached the level of militancy it did without that experience. It also opened the door to talk about the deaths and misery that come with abortion restrictions, something similar to femicide, this widespread epidemic that is often suffered in silence. Here you can see that the banner on this abortion demonstration says, not a single woman um, dead to clandestine abortion. So ni una, like taking the slogan, ni una menos, but applying it to, to abortion. Before, um, before the legalization of abortion, it's estimated that about 500,000 abortions took place every year in Argentina. Most of these were clandestine abortions um, and usually performed unsafely. Um, it's the second leading cause of death. This is changing a little bit because of the access to pills that exists. But it, until very recently, it's been um, the second leading cause of death for, for people who can get pregnant in, across Latin America. And it's, it's also that in Latin America, uh, it's, it's often criminalized, uh, which um, Reito talked about. Um, usually, the way that people are found out is when they seek medical attention after um, suffering infection, after having a procedure, and medical professionals turning them into the state. So this consciousness of femicide and death from restrictions on abortion and the collective memory of the children whose lives were stolen by the state make up a compelling counter to the bullshit about fetuses and sins, even in a country where the Pope gets, even the, the, where the Pope is from. Um, this, this idea that period, people have a right to their lives and their bodies, it's the most fundamental democratic demand that there could possibly be. And I, I just want to go back to where I started with this historic victory, uh, just to explain what's in the bill that passed. Uh, so abortion is now legal in Argentina up to 14 weeks. It's still criminalized after that, except for in cases of rape and incest. There's a 10-day window, and this is not like in the US where we have waiting period. It's not a waiting period. It's a window that says, if you say you need an abortion, you have to be given one, an appointment within 10 days. And it also, one of the worst uh, compromises in this bill is that it allows for conscientious objection, which means that um, healthcare professionals who are part of the far right or who you know, don't morally agree with abortion for themselves can, can say, I will not perform abortion. Um, I wanna, importantly, um, this is not the bill that the Campaign for the Right to Abortion put forward. Their bill said full decriminalization, access to abortion as a basic democratic right that should be guaranteed. No, no criminalization, no window, nothing. And they, they demanded a five-day window that you have to be given an abortion within five days of wanting one. This, this victory is decades in the making, and it's now entered a new phase of struggle as the application of this bill and some of the contradictions of it are, are taking hold. And it's, it's honestly, in some ways, it's a more complicated period to navigate uh, because in, in, in positive ways, because so much has changed. And the question of, it's so much has changed, so, so how, do you, how do you convince on a mass level that things still have to be fought for daily? Um, and I just want to end by saying how incumbent it is on, on us as feminists in the U.S. to learn from these abortion victories that are happening around the world 
and also to interrogate why we're losing ground while people who have never had historic access to abortion are winning it. Um, we have to learn our own history and build our own fight for the full democratization of life, for which reproductive justice is, is, is the most important starting point. Um, and there are socialist feminists around the world, and we, can have, we have a couple of them here with us. We're so lucky to have them here today uh, who support us in our tasks because they know that they're interconnected. And um, I just want to finally end just by playing two very short videos back to back. Um, the first is uh, from the, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, and the second is from the moment when um, abortion was passed. And uh, I think it kind of sums up some of these issues, but also gives you a little sense of what the struggle looks like. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm 
very cognizant of the fact that like in five states in the last week, trigger laws did go into effect. So that's like one thing I wanted to offer up. Um, and also that, you know, obviously we have been watching what has certainly been like a fluctuating uh, movement in the streets and outside of it as we've watched the um, largely inadequate response from um, nonprofit groups and um, more corporate feminist groups in the United States who have been working on these issues for decades and seemingly were not prepared to take to the streets when that time came. Um, but at the same time, we've also seen, you know, very serious and often like exhausting work being done by abortion funds. And um, I do want to like, I'll, I'll be speaking a little bit about like how, um, you know, non-governmental bodies and like groups of organizers have had to fill gaps here in the way that that looks right now. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Ireland and Northern Ireland, um, where similarly, despite recent progress there that is uh, in some ways more optimistic than what we're going through right now because of the lack of actual institutional support or implementation that it hasn't actually like materialized in the way that would, you know, be indicative of the sort of policies that they said they passed, right? Um, so, yeah, I guess I wanted to start like grounding us here in the U.S. and then maybe I'll jump over to Ireland now because I'm going to talk a little bit. They, as all of, you'll, you'll notice a lot of the same themes that have come up in everyone else's and especially even just with like the historical timeline, you'll notice a lot of the same themes that have come up in, in Poland, in Argentina, in Mexico. Um, and it's not a mistake, right? Um, but I do think that that might be the easiest way to get us back to the States. Um, yeah, sorry, just checking my time. Um, yeah. So, where to begin? Okay, Ireland and Northern Ireland, I'm sure you're all familiar, are two separate states. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Um, the Republic of Ireland has existed since 1949. They became a free state in 1922, so, yay, 100 years. Um, but yeah, they've only technically existed as like a governmental body. They have a bicameral parliament. Um, in 2018, uh, they had a vote, like a popular vote, to repeal the Eighth Amendment which banned abortion at the like on the constitutional level across the nation, and it was repealed in 2018 after several decades of feminist organizing. Um, I want to, you know, come back to this issue that has come up in everyone's comments about the role of the Catholic Church and how that vote happened, and also just like the general dynamic of gender politics in Ireland and how deeply rooted that is in. Um, ideology that was set there by the Catholic Church. Um, I will also say like somewhat differently than Argentina um, and other states, the church does have like a very negative perception in Ireland at present. Like uh, Catholic schools have like a very low enrollment rate at this point. Um, the number of young people that actually self-identify as Catholic has been, you know, precipitously dropping over recent years. And that is similarly because of, um, dude, I love solidarity. In a similar case to the Magis de Plaza de Mayo, um, in Ireland there were this thing called Magdalene laundries, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, but they were functionally, um, I'm thinking about Liat and Moshe because I saw the disability justice panel yesterday, they were like a carceral form of institutionalization of women. Basically, if you were an unmarried pregnant person, um, you would be like moved to a home, which was called a Magdalene laundry, uncompensated work. Uh, labor on behalf of these nun-run houses, 
Um, and often, like, when women die in childbirth, which is pretty regular, or when they die for, like, malnourishment, mistreatment within the homes, or when their children died during that dynamic, they were buried in unmarked graves on the property of the laundries. So throughout, am I, sorry, you're a bitch in your face, you were not telling me I was being quiet, I'm so sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, so over the 20th century, there was a mass movement to identify, like, locate the bodies of women that had been disappeared functionally, the same language even, like, despacitos, but women and children that had been disappeared and their bodies had been lost during the process of them being moved to Magdalene laundries. So it's sort of like the uncovering and um, state level uh, truth and reconciliation type process that they had in the latter half of the 20th century into the you know 21st century. And these are ongoing conversations to be clear. And there's been a lot of really great documentaries, books, et cetera, that you can read about the Magdalene laundries if you're interested. But it's very much so like shaped how women had come to like see the Irish state as like a fully distrustful institution because of the legacy of that and the very like legitimate work done by activists to bring those histories to light and also contextualize them as proof of patriarchy being something that is like institutionalized both by the church which has like a social um, compulsion element to it right like the way that it's a social relation to be like experiencing misogyny at all of these levels, right? And also like through the government, which was for a long time linked to the Catholic Church. Um, so I want to start with the Republic because um, since 2018, it has after the repeal of the abortion ban, which um, oh sorry, let me back up like a teensy bit. So the other dynamic besides Magdalene Laundries is that. Um, Similarly to Poland, Ireland's like a pretty small country comparatively speaking. Like geographically, the island is like kind of the size of like New Jersey, just for like a comparison point. Um, and so it is definitely like a movement that was very much so spurred onward by like individual cases and like deaths of individuals. Um, and so one was uh, Savita Halapanabar in 2012, which I'm sure many of you heard about because she was definitely like the face of the repeal movement, which is what it was called the repeal movement. Um, and she died in 2012 during from complications during pregnancy. She went into sepsis, and well, during her pregnancy, both she and her child died. Um, but it was like a very grueling labor that went on for 18 hours, and her husband was there asking them to, you know, uh, terminate the pregnancy so that she would be able to survive, which was very possible. Like this was not like a death that had to happen, and they chose basically to let her die, thinking that like that was what they were responsible to do by the state. Um, so Halapanavar's death was definitely like a rallying cry. There's also a 1994 case called Girl X, which was the case of a 14-year-old who um, was trying to leave the country and go to the United Kingdom to get an abortion, which is very common in Ireland to this day, both in the Republic and Northern Ireland, to need to fly to get to, which is, I think we're going to get us the wrap of talking about the fact of having a lake border cross. Um, so Girl X had attempted to fly to the United Kingdom to get an abortion, but when it, it like became clear in the um, like like while she was trying to get to the airport, the state detained her basically because they knew that it was with the intention of getting an abortion. And prior to like the last decade, basically, it was something that like you could be stopped at like you're trying to leave. Um, and that case, the ultimate ruling, did protect like the rights of the mother, the right of the mother in the case of like mental health, like if you're a suicide risk to yourself, but it doesn't actually, it did not protect in the right, in the case of um, immediate death or inevitable death, which is how Savita ended up dying. Um, 
so that was now protected right after that case. Um, so kind of like bumping us all the way up to now, post-2018, the problem in Ireland, as well as Northern Ireland, which has like similarly restrictive abortion laws that have slightly shifted since 2020 is implementation. It is like a situation where the government keeps pointing fingers at other like offices, like kind of like, uh, it'd be the equivalent of um, like the center, the CDC blaming like a different, you know, like federal level body or blaming the Supreme Court or whatever, being like, oh, well, that's actually their job. And so they've created all of these really arbitrary restrictions, which actually reminded me of abortion policy in Texas. Um, to be like, oh, you need to be in an emergency clinic, you need to have these three types of doctors there, blah, blah, blah. Um, so basically coming up with like arbitrary like st stalling tactics, right? And like scapegoating to further like drag out the process. Um, which is part of why um, there's a great book, it's for sale in bookstores, called Repealed, it's by Camilla Fitzsimmons, um, and has blue cover, and it has like a little repealed label in front. Um, that's for sale today. I had spoken to Camilla last year, and something that we talked a lot about echoing like complaints within the U.S. movement is how like corporate NGOs and um, politicians had largely like co-opted repeal as like the end game win, whereas it was a compromise for a lot of the organizers because yeah, like just getting rid of like a ban is not the same thing as actually enshrining access, right? And currently in the Republic, uh, it's only protected up to 12 weeks. That's also the case in. Um, Northern Ireland as of 2020, but also how much is like the right to abortion actually a right if you can't get it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I uh, specifically in Northern Ireland went to shout out um, Alliance for Choice Dairy, which Dairy Girls, if you guys watch. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's great. Go to their website, they have their picture of, at the, of the group, like is in front of the Dairy Girls mural in Dairy. It's very cute. Um, but right now, what, a lot of what they're working on is doing trainings on how to access self-administered abortion. Um, technically, you're supposed to be able to get self-administered abortion pills in the United Kingdom for free. That also happened last week. UK and Wales are supposed to be getting, be able to get them by mail for free. Um, but the, again, the, the structures are not there for that to actually, okay, I'm like gonna stop now. Um, but like, like the, the structural piece is not there for that to happen. The other last point I wanted to make is that uh, and this is certainly not only the case in Ireland and Northern Ireland, but um, a lot of the pro-life movement, as I said, like the Catholic Church has really been undermined in Ireland and Northern Ireland. So a lot of the pro-life movement there is actually like being sponsored by American pro-life groups like right, right to Life, who will fund to fly agitators to clinics, well, not clinics, but to, to movement spaces or hospitals or when they know a vote's going to happen. They also do this in the United Kingdom, just like in Britain, which I think is why you've seen this horrible kind of dovetailing of like anti-trans sentiment and um, like anti-choice sentiment happening at the same time in the United Kingdom. Um, and so, yeah, that's just like speaking of the international thing, like to, to bring it home, like what we don't, the mess we don't clean up here will go elsewhere, which is like, you know, a foreign policy thing that I think we've all come to understand when it comes to like war, but uh, just as much so as like global patriarchy as a war on, you know, bodily autonomy and all that good stuff, I think. Hopefully it's a useful comparison point. And I'll stop there, because I'm sure I can ramble onward on other stuff at other points during this. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel.
where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.